Morning, friends. As Cole just mentioned in our prayer time, um, we've been looking at atonement theory um, during Lent, which I was reminded this week is a bit of a misnomer. It's shorthand because uh, it's not really a theory. We can't prove it. Uh, it's not a scientific uh, hypothesis that we can work through. Uh, these are metaphors and ideas. And uh, when we say atonement theory, we're generally talking about uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, which isn't always necessarily referred to as an atonement. Uh, so we're kind of, you know, shorthanding stuff a little bit here or putting it in a certain way of understanding this by the way we're titling it that may or, not, may or may not be helpful to the way we think about it. The other thing that I think we've noticed as we started this series is a lot of times we haven't thought much about this series. These are, these are things, you know, talking about atonement theory, now I'm going to use the shorthand, um, talking about atonement theory is not something the church does very much about except to say this is the one you should believe, let's stop talking about it. And so that's part of our hope is to open this up to say, what happens when we think about this? What happens when we pray about this? What does this look like? So we're not here to try to necessarily convince you of any particular way to look at this, but to say this does affect the way we think about God, the way we relate to God. So last week we did um, probably the most prevalent in Protestant circles, the penal substitutionary theory, which is the one we all kind of automatically know, like Jesus died for my sin, uh, took it on himself, so therefore I don't have to carry it, now I'm free to be in relationship with God. That's kind of the bit, that's the one we looked at uh, last week, and this week we're going to look at three, uh, because I can talk faster than Leslie can. <laughs> no. Uh, we're going to look at three that are somewhat related, uh, and these are historical unorthodox theories of what happened uh, in Jesus' death and resurrection. The first of these is called ransom theory. It's one of the oldest theories, and it's also the one that C.S. Lewis uses in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Basic concept here is that the devil or sin or death has sway or ownership over us because of our sin, and God, in order to make that right, to pay that price, uh, gives Jesus up to devil, sin, death, uh, and essentially purchases us back. That's the basic idea of it. It's transactional. The ransom is paid. Uh, as you can see, maybe it looked better on my computer screen. Uh, you know, Oslan goes to the stone table in this, you know, parallel story. Uh, and that's the way that, that we are rescued by, by a ransom being paid. Maybe you've heard that one before, or that one sometimes kind of gets braided into other ones, sort of who's getting paid off and how and why all gets kind of mushy in our, our talking about this often. It's the primary way that people thought about this if they thought about this in the first thousand years of the church's history. This is the most adopted one. The second one we're talking about today is called Christus Victor, and it's kind of similar to the ransom theory. Uh, it's the actual being called Christus Victor is a more recent thing, 1931-ish is where this has come up with, and uh, the guy who comes up with this, Gustav Allen, uh, is saying, actually, I think we've misunderstood, mistranslated what ransom theory was. So he's saying, rather than this being so much of a God's paying off Satan, this is more of a God defeats Satan or evil or death in a battle royale. This is not 
we were stolen and now God is writing a ransom note, you know, responding to the ransom note in you know, random letters. This is God has a huge battle and defeats the powers of evil uh, by Jesus' action on the cross. It's more like a direct war kind of idea, which I suppose if you're writing in the 1930s sort of makes sense that war might be on your mind. This is a way, uh, in a sense, it's almost like if you take the American Civil War and the work to free folks who were in slavery through defeating the masters in that situation, it's kind of a parallel with that. And finally, the third theory that we're talking about today is uh, the satisfaction theory. And uh, Leslie talked about this really briefly last week, that satisfaction theory is where penal substitutionary theory finds its way. And part of what happens with satisfaction theory is Anselm, who is a major figure in the English church in the 12th century, uh, looks at ransom theory and says, I, I can't really buy that. That doesn't make sense to me. Maybe that's a funny way to say that. I can't really buy ransom theory. And so Anselm starts to think about, well, what did happen? If I can't understand it through this lens, what lens can I understand it through? And he comes up, as Leslie said last week, he comes up with this theory that by sinning, we have offended God's honor, and that is untenable for God. So therefore, something has to be done in order to restore God's honor. But we are not capable of that. And so God has to do something to restore God's honor, and does that by sending Jesus to live among us, to die and be resurrected. It's interesting to notice that that kind of thinking probably only could come out of 12th century Europe. Where else is honor so highly held and so important? As we think about these lenses and metaphors, one of the things that's important to remember is they come out of specific times and places from specific people who have a worldview, just as we do, that's inescapable. And so as weird as it might kind of sound, like isn't there a different way to deal with this? For people in Anselm's day, this is a helpful handle. If you offend a knight or you offend a king and you offend their honor, something needs to be done to make that right. Now, there are, I would say, logically, all kinds of gaping holes in these theories. If you take, say, ransom theory, you know, the, the warranty on ransom theory lasts two days. Results may vary. Like, who makes a deal and says, here's the ransom, I'm revoking it after three days, and thinks that's just? That's sort of a logical problem with thinking that way. Or, as Anselm sort of pointed out, would an all-powerful God be subject to Satan's power? Or, if Jesus has defeated Satan through his work on the cross, why are we all still sinning? Or, why does God have to make a sacrifice of God's self to restore God's honor? Or, if we take Paul's words in Philippians, how does God humiliating God's self restore God's honor? There are lots of questions about these things. And one of the things to notice is that all of these theories are transactional, not unconditional. All of these things are, there's somebody or something that has to be paid off or defeated. They're all exchange systems of righteousness. 
And part of what's hard about these things standing up to scrutiny from a biblical perspective is that when we read scripture well, we recognize that God's grace has always been present. So sometimes to make these theories work, you've probably heard this kind of thing where like, because God stands outside of time, then this historical act is retroactive on everything that happened before, and that's why it worked. But you're kind of having to do some sort of philosophical gymnastics to get there. You're having to try to make what Scripture says fit into your theory, rather than your theory fit into what Scripture says. God's grace and love has always been present. And the sacrifices that are in the Old Testament are outward symbols of obedience. They're symbols of an internal, internal reality, not a commodity or means by which grace happens. And there's several places that you kind of have to ignore in the Old Testament if you're going to buy into these theories. From Hosea 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or from 1 Samuel 15, 22, this one seems kind of direct, Does the Lord really want sacrifices and offerings? No. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants you to obey him. Or from Micah 6, where we often just quote verse 8, which talks about justice and love and humility. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It seems pretty clear that sacrifice isn't the main thing. That obedience is the main thing. That living as God calls us to is the main thing. We've been joking that, uh, well, Gina's been asking the question, what do we teach our kids about this? How do you have a conversation with folks who are under 10 about death and resurrection? And one of the jokes we keep on making is, you know, it's too bad that Jesus said the two most important things were that you understand atonement theory and practice that in your life. One of the things that's interesting to note is that almost all of these uh, atonement theories that we're talking about come out of Western thought. They come out of a Roman background. And I had a professor at, at Fox, who I really appreciated, talk about the difference between Roman justice systems and Jewish justice, justice systems. And of course, Jesus is operating in a Jewish custom, right? I mean, he, he's interacting with Roman too, but his work is within a Jewish community. But we understand it through a Roman lens. And Roman understandings of justice are not particularly about reconciliation. Romans' understandings of justice is about retribution. You do this, here's the penalty for this. And it makes for a really nice justice system, and we still, we still do this. It mostly works to say, if you do this, here's the penalty, and we no longer have to hold you accountable for what you did. You've paid the price. It's done. Where in a Jewish justice system, it's much more concerned with reconciliation. So if you read what God is saying to Israel when he's upset with what's what Israel has chosen to do, 
God is not just saying, well, here's the penalty that you have to pay. God more often is saying, here's the consequence of your poor action, and here's what we need to do to make it right between us. And that's a huge difference in what we understand justice to be about. Is it about paying the penalty, or is it about restoring people to right relationship? One of the things we really have to wrestle with, then, is that Scripture doesn't spell out an official atonement theory in the sense of here's the price that has to be paid and this is what that looks like. Even when scripture uses terms, which it does for all of these atonement theories, there is something in scripture that supports all of them. You know, so we can't just say, mm, gone, there's no basis for this. There is basis for these things. But it doesn't spell out anything and say this is what you have to believe. And even when it does, we've often taken that stuff out of context. So if we come back to the idea of ransom, there's a couple places in the New Testament that it specifically talks about ransom. It does that in Mark, and it does that in Timothy. And even in these places, in Timothy, Paul is talking about the blood of Jesus and Jesus crucified. And in Mark, Jesus says, I've been given as a ransom for many. That word is an interesting word, and we've chosen to look at it in a certain way. We've, we've chosen to look at it in the sense of a ransom note. But that word also can mean, in Greek, can also mean set aside for. Like it's put aside for this purpose. So when you think about the Levites in the Old Testament, that tribe of people is set aside for being priests. This is their job. This is designated. And when you look at this word and you look at the context it's used in, both places, it's in a relational place. And it makes more sense to see it as set aside for. So in Mark, it's when the disciples are arguing about who's the most important, if you'll remember. They get kind of caught up in this idea, which I'm glad none of us do, that, that we can be the best for Jesus, right? Like, and, we can, and we'll have a really great place because of this. And Jesus' response is, I'm sent to be a ransom for many. So we could hear that as Jesus is here to, you know, rescue our souls from the devil or whatever. Or you could see it as, hey folks, you're called, as I'm called, to be set aside for the purposes God has made me for. That's another way of hearing that. And in, um, in Timothy, this one is opening kind of a can of worms because it gets into the whole women ought to keep their heads covered and all that. It's that same chapter. But Paul says... He has this kind of like little set aside. It's almost like a hymn that says Christ is sent as a ransom. But then he says, therefore, like in light of this, I want you to do these things. I want you to practice holiness. I want you to practice purity. I want you to live your life in this set aside way because of this. And so there's some sense there that maybe we've misunderstood or mistranslated or misused the word ransom. And that's true of almost any of these theories. There's different ways to look at them. One of the things we don't very often acknowledge, because it's easier if we don't, is that we look through a lens of interpretation. That when we read scripture, we're hearing it through at least, usually, at least two different language translations and across 2,000 years of different cultures. And that is going to affect how we hear it. 
So it's important to remember that, that our definitiveness sometimes maybe isn't as good as we'd hope it would be. And that's really not a problem unless we think we have to be right, which may be different than being faithful. And it's a reminder, too, that these are metaphors, that these are tools, that the way that we think about what's going on is a way we're trying to get to the ends of being in right relationship with God. These are means. They are inherently relative and subjective. And like all metaphors, they're limited to the understanding of the culture and time that we come from. Metaphors are not the ends, but a means to get to the end. Building a house would require tools, but it's not the tools or the technique of the house building that's the point, although the results vary a lot depending on what tools you use, what tools are available to you. Or if I think about music, which is more, I'm more of this kind of person where I'm going to use the hammer on the screw. Uh, when I think about music, it's not the musician's technique that probably I would say most of you care about. I do. I like to watch what the musicians are doing and try to figure it out. But I think most of us listen to music for the effect the music has. And of course the tools we're using to make music will change how the music feels. The culture that we're part of will change how the music feels. But in the end, the point is making the music, not how you play the F sharp minor 7 on the guitar. Or what tuning that guitar is in. Does that make sense? And when we think about our metaphors, that's sort of a similar thing. They're going to affect how we experience this in the end, but they're the tools to get to the end. The tools to be, in this case, in relationship with Jesus and to be faithful to that movement in our lives. The cultural lenses we use through metaphors will inevitably result in both beautiful and negative handles. I really appreciated Coleman's word last week in open worship to say, you know, there's pieces of this substitutionary theory that Jesus is there when I don't have anything to give, that Jesus shows up to save me from my own despair or my own limitations. That was really helpful to hear, to be reminded there's beauty in this, as well as sometimes there's shame in this, or sometimes there's self-depreciation in this. That when we talk about these things, they have these effects on how we see God and how we see ourselves, and if we're really honest, these helpful handles and these distortions are part of any way we think and talk about this stuff. We can't transcend our limitations. We're stuck with our experience and our ability to conceive. And the good news is that it's not God that seems to mind that so much as it's us that seems to mind having these limitations. God seems to be okay with us not understanding or maybe not being able to save ourselves. Maybe that's the point. I'll also add, it's really easy to take shots at people who came before us. P.J. O'Rourke said, making fun of born-again Christians is like hunting dairy cows with high-powered rifle and scope. Which seems a little bit uh, edgy until you think probably anybody who believes anything could fit into that category as not being too hard to take aim at. And I'd encourage us that we would be gentle with the folks who came before us and the metaphors they used. 
and that we might assume their sincerity in what they were trying to accomplish. Even as, at least I know myself, can often feel very cynical. But I think folks who came before us are trying to do what we're trying to do, which is find the tools to help us relate to God, to understand how to be faithful better, to understand the love of God that happened in what Jesus did. And every way of thinking about these things has both positive and negative results. We should do well to, re- to, to recognize this when we think about atonement theory. That if we see this as something that we're helpless in, part of the negativity is we might not live into the image of God that we're called to be. We might not become empowered by what Jesus does for us to be the hands and feet and joyful beings that we're made to be. But if we believe that we don't need Jesus to be those things, then we've got something else going on that's a problem. There's weights and balances to this stuff. If we choose love over justice, maybe we end up with cheap grace. If we choose justice over love, we end up missing the primary character of God. As Leslie and I talked about this whole process, we were reminded of conversations we've had with folks and folks saying, you know, God's our parent and we don't want parents that don't discipline. That makes sense. You need to have accountability and boundaries for kids. They need to learn to behave appropriately. But if we choose discipline over loving our kids, that's no good either. And each of these theories then gives us some kind of peace to hold on to. Something that helps us understand the nature of God and we hope that that gets us to a more true place that we can be faithful and responsive to what God is doing in our lives. That we can have at least a more accurate image of who God is and what God is about. So friends, let's take some time to listen. We've started writing our um, understandings about what we're doing in open worship and what we hope that might look like for us as a practice on the slide so that we don't have to say it every week. And we're just asking a simple question this week. How is Christ speaking to you? So if you have a message, please feel free to share it. Please be attentive to it. Let's listen to Christ together.